Welcome to It's a Good Life podcast, where it's all about helping entrepreneurs think, feel, and do better. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Top of the morning to you, and welcome to It's a Good Life. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Ron Tite. Ron Tite is a Canadian and a great friend of our good friend, Scott Stratton. So that's how we got to know each other. Uh, he is founder and chief creative officer of Church and State. He's an entrepreneur speaker, best-selling author, and just love his new book, Think, Do, and Say. And uh, it's all about how to seize attention, build trust in a busy, busy world. So, Ron, welcome to the show. Top of the morning to you. Thanks for uh, coming on the program today. A top of the morning to you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this. Yeah, this will be a good time. Good time. And more Canadians we can have, the better. <laughs> it's always good. So before we kind of dive into the book, our audience is a curious bunch, as I am myself. I'd love to know a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from, uh, what led you down the path to being an entrepreneur and writing books and doing some of the other crazy stuff you've done. Well, I think a little bit like your background, not not quite Irish, but, uh, you know, I had uh, my grandfather came from Italy. And so I'm, you know, raised in a uh, originally from Montreal, born in Montreal. Uh, and so raised in this, you know, Francophone, Quebecois, Italian family, which is, you know, the stories that were told around those tables, you know, around the tables and in the in the basements and everything um, are it was just such a great. I don't know, a great storytelling family. And they, you know, they very blue collar, you know, they're, you know, um, no entrepreneurs in the group or anything. Um, but what I learned really early on was that they knew the power, what I refer to from my comedy life is they knew the power of the bit, mm. you know, which is like, they didn't just tell great stories, but they'd, they'd, there'd be a group of people and there'd be one new person. And and they would point to somebody else and they'd go, he's never heard the story. Tell him about the time, <laughs> right? And everybody around the table had heard the story four sure. million times. Right. But the person would lead him with the story yeah. and they'd know every accent, every beat, every pause. And I just found that that was just such a great way to communicate. And so eventually, you know, later, years and years later, when I wanted to become a comedian... That is a, you know, I think a, a core strength that I had before I ever set foot on stage. And then as I moved into speaking, that, you know, again, that those, the stand-up skills that I developed as a comedian helped, you know, uh, a ton. So, you know, it's funny, right? People fly to thousands and thousands of people fly into LA to try to take these improv classes and learn this and learn that. And they're painting by numbers. And at the same, obviously, you know, here I am with an Italian last name and an Irish family. And, uh, you know, when you have BBC One and BBC Two and RTE One and RTE Two on a black and white television, you get real good at telling stories, you know, because there's nothing else to do. <laughs> That's right. And we grew up with this, right? And, and it's, uh, it's part of the tradition. It's part of the family. But it's also, you know, as you and we'll talk about it later, uh, in today's world, right, all of these people, I, I just was at this business conference and uh, these guys were coming in, you know, with huge proposals to... I can help your company tell its story and tell its right. story. And, and they have it all this paint by numbers. And I think to myself, you know, I grew up doing this naturally. This is all we did all the time. All the time. And, uh, you know, so it's funny when, when we would go out on the road and do our seminars, we'd have a few new staff people. I'd take the staff to dinner. You'd have 20 people. And they'd go, tell them the one about and tell them the one. You know, same <laughs> thing, right? So 
It's great. T- tell us about how you ended up in the comedy business, because I think stand-up comedy, you know, I've been a public speaker for 30-some years, but stand-up comedy is a different animal, because you're out there on the edge of the skinny diving board, and, you know, I've told jokes, I tell jokes, and people laugh at it because it's unexpected as a speaker. When you're a stand-up com- comedian, you're expected to be funny, yeah. and uh, as they say, when it, one goes over like a fart in church, you know, you're out there by yourself, <laughs> uh, all alone, with nowhere to go, so... You know, tell me about the whole stand-up business. Yeah, I, you know, I, I grew up loving comedy. I just loved the craft of it. I, I was really drawn to it. And, you know, I remember when, when um, in an interview, Jerry Seinfeld said he saw Jonathan Winters, you know, and said, like, I can't do that. Like, that's a whole other thing. But when he saw Robert Klein, he said, like, I can, I can, like, I can do that. I, I right. can do that. And um, and so for me, it was kind of like Robin Williams. It was like, well, I can't do that. Like, that's such a weird, mm-hmm. unique set of behaviors. But then I saw, and it's horrible to even say his name now, given the, what we found out. But when I saw Bill Cosby, and it was like, oh, this is a guy who's just telling stories about growing up in his house. Like, I can, I can do that. Yeah. And so I loved that. And then I, I did some time at Second City uh, mm-hmm. in the training center. And wasn't ever really a great improviser. And I just, I wanted to do comedy. I just love stand-up. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I asked a friend, like, what, and, you know, this dovetails to your earlier question of entrepreneurialism. I went to a friend who was a, was a, a stand-up, and I said, what do I do? I want to do stand-up. And he goes, okay, you got to go to the Yuck Yucks and do an open mic night. And for on a Monday night, you sign up for open for five minutes, and you see what you can do. So I said, okay, I'm going to just, I'm not going to commit. I'm going to go down. I'm just going to check it out. Mm-hmm. And I went down, and... It was chaos. It was an absolute. Oh, really? Beep sh- it was a beep show, right? <laughs> and I said, I'm not doing this. I'm already better than these people. It was totally arrogant with it, right? And I right. said, no, I'm not. That guy lost a bet. That guy's drunk. No, I'm not doing this. Yeah. So I went back to him and I said, what's another way to do it? I'm not doing it that way. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, the only other way is you can find a producer who's producing a live show and you can convince them to allow you on the bill, even though you've never done it before. Mm-hmm. And then I said, why don't I just make myself the producer? And so my very first time <laughs> ever doing stand-up comedy, I produced the show, made myself the headliner, and did a 45-minute headlining set. You did not. Yeah. And now, I just let said, me ask you this. In your background, yeah. were you the kid in school who could keep everybody's attention? You've obviously been were – you, were you a person who – you know, had you done stuff in groups where you got feedback, you made people laugh, you could do things that was funny. You got yeah, that feedback. I was never that- the class clown. Like I was okay. never the the like yep. you know the poorly behaved class clown. Okay. But when given the moment, on st- I was always a good speaker because of that Italian background. Yeah. And I was always very comfortable on stage. And I did a couple of things in high school where I did impersonations of other comedians. Sure. And. And that was the moment, you know, in grade 11 when I did it the first time mm-hmm. in front of 500 people. And you yeah. get 500 people laughing at something yep. you've said. Man, that you want, how do I get more of that? That's The tuning fork. Like that tuning fork goes off inside. And I, ooh, yep. I, I've just stepped into my gift here. Yeah. And then, and I just always loved it. And I, what I, I think one of the great things about stand-up is there are no excuses. You know, in so many mm-hmm. businesses... You go, well, I called the guy. He didn't call me back. And you're like, not in comedy. Like, it's you. It's a microphone. <laughs> that's it. And if it tanks, it's 100% on you. Yeah. And if it goes brilliantly, 
that's 100% on you. And I loved that high wire act. And I loved experimenting. And I loved, I loved, you know, after a certain number of years, I actually quite enjoyed tanking every once in a while because it, it shows you that you're not just doing the same old material, that you're completely trying new stuff. Right. And I love that. I love that. Yeah. So then that evolved into public speaking. And as you got into public speaking, were you doing stand-up initially? Or did you just have some things that you really wanted to talk about that you wove around stand-up? How did that work? Yeah, it was a, it was a weird pivot because mm. I was, uh, you know, I was always working in advertising. And so I yeah. understood business. I understood most categories because I was creative guy. I worked from telco to automotive. Like, I understood pretty much superficially. I understood it all. Yeah. And and so I would go in and I would do corporate comedy. So I would go in, I'd listen to a conference all day, I'd listen to the speakers, I'd write a custom set and then deliver it at nighttime. Well, that doesn't scale well, Brian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're using original material every single time. No. And so then I just slowly started bringing in these kind of strategic insights. And at first, it was really weird because people were like, isn't this guy the comedian? Like, what's he? <laughs> he what's has a he point. About? This guy's got a point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's such a great way to put it. What are you doing? You shouldn't have a point. And, and you know, we talk about these pivots in business, and this was the most important mm-hmm. pivot of my career, mm-hmm. where I went from I sold myself as a comedian who knows about business, mm-hmm. and they didn't buy that because no comedian knows about business, right? And so I said, oh, no, I'm not, I went from being a comedian who knows about business to being a funny business guy. Right. And that is a completely different product. And, it, and that product, by the way, you, you charge three times yep. for that product. That's a yep. way more expensive product. Oh, yeah. You, it's a product you can scale. It's a product that has diversified revenue. So you completely diversify your portfolio yep. of revenue. Um, and it just sells more. And um, – and it's unexpected, like you said. They don't expect a speaker to be really that funny to have that right. skill, right? But a comedian, they're like, "Make me laugh." Yeah, no, I get it. I get the whole Brian. You should have been a comedian, but I get that all the time. But if I was out there as the comedian, they'd be like, "You should have been a businessman." <laughs> That's what I would have got. <laughs> so it's kind of like people love to be entertained, and I call it edutainment. Yeah. And so but that dynamic is okay, now you're leading with the business and you're funny. It's like a value add. So but it's I, I think that that pivot you're talking about and a lot of people, and we'll get to it here before we're finished. We've had forty seven million people in the United States alone change jobs in the last two years. Yeah. And seventy percent of them are having buyer's remorse. Eighty yeah. percent of millennials. And the great quote I've seen with millennials is, uh, this new job is not exactly what they offered me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> welcome. Welcome to adulthood, millennials. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but so there's a lot of people have actually struggled with this pivot. And we're going to get into it because I think you address some things in the book that are very powerful. Because just like you said, it sounds very simple. A comedian with business insights as opposed to a funny business guy, like you said, triple the revenue, easier to identify brand, easier to refer, bigger market, you know, you can scale it, you can diversify it, and you can sell more. And, and that's where I want to go with you right now So as we kind of get into it because we have hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs tuning in today. Yeah. You know, I wrote a book called The Emigrant Edge, which was, you know, about 
emigrants coming, leaving their home country, coming to the States and making it big. Mm-hmm. And there were thousands of these stories, not just mine. And I saw this interview. I was at this Harvard Business School and there were a, uh, the number one, you know, surveyor in the world said 52% of millennials believe the American dream is no longer alive. And it just shattered me. You know, it kind of shattered mm-hmm. me here because I'm like, that is so not true. It's not the experience. It's not what I'm seeing. It led me to ultimately go down a journey to write a book. What led you to write Think, Do, and Say? What was it that inspired you, as they say? Well, I, I you know, there are speakers uh, who write. Yeah. And there are writers who speak. Right. And it's weird in that I'm a little bit of both. I'm a writer. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was a writer and a creative director. Um, and so I've written ads and of all kinds. And so there is a part of me that loves the craft of writing. But where some people, they they sit down, they research, they write a book, and then they go and tour it like an album. And they're like, okay, mm-hmm. now I'm going to do the speech version. I'm the opposite. Whereas I don't write a new speech. I never write a new speech. I'm always reading and, and preparing the next speech. So I'm always reading something and going like, oh, and so I designed the slide in that moment, I put it into a bucket. And I just, mm-hmm. things that interest me and things that I'm curious. And after a while, you've got a collection of material and you go, okay, now I need a, I need a thread through this. What's my thread? Mm-hmm. And then after, and then I start to deliver it in speech form, but always coming up with the new two minutes, every single speech, there's a new two minutes of something I've read. And I just craft it on the road. And then after a year, you're like, I got a book. I have a book yeah. now. And yep. so because I've got five hours of material, but I typically only do an hour speech. And so I can never really tell the full story. And so it was like the book allowed me to do that and allowed me to pursue it in written form. That's great. I, I so identify with this. Now, I'm, I'm on the speaker who writes side of things. Mm-hmm. I have a community of members. You know, we have 25,000 people we coach in work with on a regular basis. And these are typically the people coming to the seminars over and over again. So I have to create new content. So, you know, it's, I, I have to create new content all the time. And that's where the creative force comes from to, to go uh, pump it out. But I do believe in preparing for the different presentations. Like you say, I, I always believe that the best stuff is on the cutting room floor when you go to do yeah. a presentation because you got 45 minutes or an hour. Yeah, and you just can't save the world in an hour, you know. Yeah. So, well, you know, to t- your to your point, Brian, about the the Great Resignation, you know, that everyone's talking mm-hmm. about the Great yeah. Resignation. What I find really interesting is that there are actually two definitions to resignation. Mm. One is this, you know, it is a reaction to an unfavorable situation where you say, "This sucks, I quit." But the other one is way more dangerous. The other definition is when somebody is resigned, mm. where they're resigned to doing the same old thing over and over and over again, mm-hmm. and so the what I what I learned from comedy is that the first time you ever tell a new joke on stage is going to be the most powerful feeling you'll get from that. Mm. Now, you, of course, you have to scale it, and so you need to tell that joke over and over again. You need to perfect the joke. But the first time you tell it and you're like, it works. Like, they get it. They understand it. I was right. That's such a great feeling. But when you just tell that joke and that's it, then you're resigned to just repeating yourself. Yes. And so it's got to be this balance of exploration and curiosity and trying new things while at the same time scaling the existing stuff so that it can get better and get better and get better. Right. It's kind of, you know, it's this, I call it like a concept car versus an assembly line model. Mm-hmm. You got to keep developing concept cars, but if only you do is concept cars, you'll never make any money. 
Right. You got to put that stuff on the assembly line. Right. No, that's good. That's good. And that's where the, to me, internal innovation and internal creativity is a lot harder. It's a lot exactly. harder to make something and be creative, make it better than it is, oh, start something new. Yeah. I, I, uh, we've all been to the guy's house that started eight projects and it looks like, <laughs> you know, a mess. So let's, let's kind of dive in here. One topic, I want to dive right into the content because there was one topic that really struck me early on. It comes up over and over again in the book, which is this whole dynamic of brand belief. Mm-hmm. And there's a million books on brands. There's a lot of opinions on brands. And I go meet the people and they don't have a clue about branding. This was powerful. Talk to me about brand belief and how you could define that for our listeners. Yeah. You know, I think that when we look at corporate purpose, corporate purpose has really been um, elevated in a in a way uh, for a number of reasons. And that's everything from it's tougher to cut through and we need to, you know, this is business now. We need to stand for something more. We need to believe in something that goes beyond the thing we sell. Otherwise, because, you know, and the the joke is people are exhausted from getting pitch slapped because everyone's got a pitch and everyone's got a promo. And so you need to be grounded in something that's higher order. Now, the problem with a lot of brands is they think that corporate purpose is a proxy for social cause. And so they go, oh, we believe in saving the environment. Like, you make cars. Like, that is not, it cannot be a fundamental brand belief. And I'm not saying those issues aren't important. I don't, you know, I'm not saying social justice and all those things that brands shouldn't believe in those. Of course they should. But that's not corporate purpose. That's not a brand belief. A brand belief is really what do you just what do you fundamentally believe in and 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 what do you believe in that goes beyond the thing you sell, but that is strategically aligned to the thing you sell. Mm-hmm. So if you go, we believe in gender equality, so we make cars. That doesn't connect. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just doesn't. And that's connect. what corporate America is doing right now, and being sold a bill of goods. I mean, the advertising agencies are just get spending billions of dollars right now, and the ads are just like. Okay, you're trying to buy a conscience. That's all that yes, is. Exactly. You're trying to and buy like, a conscience. And it, it's crap. And people see through it. I, it annoys me, to be honest with you. Yeah. And they're like, get me Donald Sutherland. So, you know, so he can say, yeah. the earth is our primary resource. <laughs> so all of us at Ruffles Barbecue Chips are here. You know, like, it's just like, it's, it's too much. And, you know, so if you use, you know, Airbnb, for example. Yep. So Airbnb, a brand belief, you know, we believe that people should feel like they belong anywhere. That's a right. fundamental brand belief. Right. And it's now, it's not about the latest cause and social issue. It is tr- strategically linked to what they sell. So the way you can evaluate whether your brand belief is strategically linked to the thing you sell is to connect the two with the word so. Mm. So take the thing you do that, that, draw, that makes you the most money. So Airbnb, we believe that people should belong, should, uh, should feel like they belong anywhere. So we hook up those people with local community accommodations so that when they travel somewhere, they can feel like they're living in the neighborhood, not in a hotel. Now, that's strategically aligned. Yeah. It allows them to win the battle for time because they now believe in something that goes beyond what they sell. And... When you look at when the Ukrainian war broke out, what did they do? They said, we are going to be, you know, uh, promoting the fact that consumers can send money to Ukrainians who are, you know, who have Airbnbs. Or we're, they said, we're, we're going to pay for Ukrainian refugees to stay somewhere in Poland mm-hmm. so that they should feel like they belong anywhere, especially when they're being, you know, evacuated right. from their country. And that's not a comment on the war or anything. But 
it's just that but that's they, strategically aligned. Strategically aligned. So now yeah. their their philanthropy is strategically aligned to their brand belief. Their product is strategically aligned, opposed to them running all over the place doing willy nilly things in attempt to either win our conscious or be digital or you know whatever. And that's brilliant. And that that's on the big level. Now let's say I have a ton of entrepreneurs who might have one or two employees. So for yep. example, for years I made my bones in real estate talking to real estate people, and that's that's probably sixty percent of our clients still. Yeah. One of the dynamics you have is how to seize attention and build trust. Now, again, we're all about referrals, so build trust in a busy world. How do people, because in our business, I see small small business owners do really goofy things to try yeah. to stand out from amongst the competition. You know, they, yeah. they're, you know I, we had a, um, an Australian real estate company that all got naked and stood behind their signs. Um, you know, you'll have a realtor outstanding in a field, outstanding in her field, yeah. and she's in yeah. a field. <laughs> How does someone with a small business and doesn't have all the resources of Airbnb and so on and so forth stand out without being a cautionary tale? Without being, I'll be candid with you, it's provided me with phenomenal humor over the years to be able to show these images and slides of people <laughs> in real estate. Uh, it's, it's a great opener for me. Uh, so how do they not become caricatures? How does a small business person do this? And uh, what most people are doing now is they're either trying to game the system so they're trying to show that they're famous as a way of gaining credibility to get more famous. So they're buying viewers and, you know, uh, you know, certainly people in the book space who are, you know, selling books uh, yep. or giving away books for free to or make some bestseller books, list. Buying the books to game the system. Yep. Yeah. They're just trying to game the system. Yep. And, you know, I remember in conversation with Seth Godin where, you know, Seth said, like, it's, it's not that that doesn't work. It does work. Mm -hmm. But now you're that person. Yeah. You're that mm -hmm. person. That's what you're doing. Really? Is that what you really want to be? Now, on the realtor side, um, I think that, that, that dis the uh, disclaimer is anybody can win the battle for attention. Anybody mm -hmm. can do that. Just go outside, kill a puppy. Go ahead. Just go <laughs> kill a puppy. Oh, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that, right? No, why don't you want to do that? Oh, that's horrible. Okay, so we know that you've got a line that there There's is a standard. Some shame, right? <laughs> okay, so it should never be about just winning the battle mm. for time. It should be about both standing out and capturing attention while building trust. Mm. And you do that by making those activities strategically aligned. Mm -hmm. The problem I find with a lot of realtors is there are realtors who are who are. Uh, associated with big brokerages, mm -hmm. which have uh, years of legacy and trust and infrastructure. Yep. Yep. And the ego of the realtor says, I want to do my own thing. I'm going to do my own logo yep. and my own color palette and everything. I'm like, what? The average consumer is sitting there and they're saying, I want somebody who is big enough to deliver and small enough to care. Nice. And all those random tactics that those don't give trust this is, for a realtor, this is the most significant financial transaction of somebody's life. Mm -hmm. You're really going to hand over $2 million to somebody who's standing buck naked behind a sign because they wanted to grab your attention? What? <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Yeah. And so, yeah, no, I think it's, it is, it is about, am I building trust over the long haul? Let's play yeah. the long game mm -hmm. and not the short game. Well, people are going to think you're, uh, you're on the payroll now. We are all about build, becoming trusted advisor for our clients. 
You know, that's what we do. We do it systematically over time. We provide value instead of shock value. And, uh, you know, here's how to increase your credit. Here's how to pay off your loan. Here's how, you know, here's yeah. how to improve your credit score. Here's how to protect yourself from identity theft. It's providing value, providing value, providing value, and ultimately building trust and turning that trust into, into advocates. Our average yeah. client sells 10 times that of the average realtor. I love it. And so all about building trust and building relationships. So we're, we're on the same page here. I want to delve back into the book here because you have a section called Do the Do. Yeah. And uh, I, I always get a kick. From, you can I can see the comedic flavor throughout. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, you're, you're really getting into the whole reinforce the, the think. You, you talked about uh, your essential do. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the essential do is that thing that connects your purpose to the, where you make your money and, and your, your brand belief to where you might make your money. What's the, what's the one thing you do mm-hmm. um, that, um, where you, yeah, where you drive revenue? And so if you're, if you're, you know, an entrepreneur and you say, we believe, you know, or in our case, the church and state, you know, we believe that people used to vote with their wallets. Now they vote with their time. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what do we do about that? Well, we help brands and media properties win that battle through diverse communications. So it's the one thing you do. And I think it, it's, it's easy to think about purpose and it's easy to promote what that purpose is on the safe part. And a lot of organizations, when I talk about purpose, they'll say, or brand belief, they'll say, oh, we've got value. In fact, if you go to our website and you right. click our values, mm-hmm. you'll see them listed there. And I'll always say, I don't care about that. I don't, because I shouldn't read your values. I should experience your values. Yeah, sure. And I only experience your values through the actions. I, you are defined by the actions you take Yep. Not by the supposed philosophies you fundamentally Come believe. Come fly in. the friendly skies. <laughs> yeah, that's, it that's hasn't right. been friendly for a long time. <laughs> yeah, so that essential do is like, what is the one thing you do that connects your purpose to where you make money? Yeah, you and I know both know we've we've traveled a lot and we're in a lot of hotels, and sometimes you get the experience. And I, I, you know, when you're on the road a little bit, and I'm never. I always treat people well. I always treat people with respect. Yeah, I never know the whole story, but I've had a couple of experiences where I, I kind of point to the wall where the mission and values <laughs> yeah. are on the wall, and I'm having a totally different experience. I go, just making sure I'm checking into the right place here. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah there's a, there's anyway. a great. You know what has saved me, Brian? Is um, there's a great comic named Tom Segura, who's got a great bit about being in a movie theater, and and there's and he's a baby in the movie theater, and he goes out to the lobby and complains to the manager, and the manager he goes like, "There's a baby being, you know, being a baby in there," and the manager just goes, "Some people suck," and walks away, right? And that is a is a life philosophy that whenever I get uh, frustrated, I think of that and go like, "Oh right, some people suck." Okay, this this is one of them. Okay, great, that's fine, that's fine, it's totally fine. Yeah. So. Let's say let's say I, I I have a company I got a, I got someone who's got six or seven employees and he's trying to he aligns his this is what I believe and then this is how I make money how would you go about encouraging that person to take it to the market are they going to use the social media are they going to use conventional advertising are they going to invest in their customers to make the mouthpieces I mean what's your favorite strategy as you go through that I think it's to really to simplify the approach, and I think there are there are so many channels and so many platforms, and uh, you know uh, so many opportunities. Mm-hmm. I think there's two things that are really important on the say side. 
Um, the, the first thing is, you know, we talked about the story, the brand story. We have something called the brand narrative. Mm. And I think it's writing that, like, you first need to, what is the story of this place? And it's not, it's basically, it answers five questions. So if you say, where do you work? What do people do? They're like, I work in this place and we're a total solution provider. And they just jump right to the do, right? This mm-hmm. is the thing we do without any context whatsoever. Right. So the narrative you should have for every business answers these five questions. One, what's going on in the world? Let's start there. What's going on in the world? Secondly, what problem does that create? Thirdly, what do you fundamentally believe about that problem? Four, how do you solve that problem? And five, why should we believe you? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the what's going on in the world through your lens is like, hey, there's stuff happening outside your category that might be changing consumer behavior, consumer mindset, everything else. So if you own a restaurant, you know what's going on in the world? Hey, guess what? Restaurants are being completely redefined by delivery service options. Yep. Okay, that's what's going on in the world. Okay, what problem does that create? Oh, pro- it creates a problem because now the experience is different for people, you know. What do you believe about that problem? Yep. You believe that Italian food, uh, you know, should be delivered with an amazing experience. Okay. How do you solve that problem? Mm. Uh, you know, we've, we, we uh, invest in a, an Italian-specific delivery service that brings the experience of Italy to the person. Okay, great. Why should we believe you? What are you talking about? My name's Buffini. Of course <laughs> you should believe me. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But, you know, that quick story. And yeah. then... You just sequentially walk it through like, okay, now that we know what we're saying, where's the best place to say that given Mm -hmm. the biggest opportunity? Mm -hmm. So if you've done some market segment analysis and you you know that it's people who are people with their first child, okay, where are those people looking? Where should you say this? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe parenting groups on Facebook. Okay, there's one place. Where else? Maybe there's parenting podcast. Okay, there's another place. And so it's just kind of throwing stuff into the parking lot. Right. Of where should you say it and when should you say it? What's a good time to say that and how should you say it? And then once you've got your parking lot full of ideas, then you just prioritize to your budget. And I know that's, you know, that's a very simplified approach, but I think people are jumping right to platforms. They're like, we got to be on Twitter. We got to be on Facebook. Here's the thing, what you just said, like, and that's, that's what, that's what the big, you know, I've sat down with the, the, the mad men advertising agencies who wanted to help me spend a couple of million dollars a year. And and just, I, I'll be honest with you, I mean, it's baffle you with BS. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what you just described, it is simplified, but it's not simple to do. Right. And I believe what most people do is, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to outsource to this third party. And then what they're going to do is this, and this is where the modern advertising and branding has gone. Oh, look at how many impressions we got you. Look at how many eyeballs we've gotten you. And nothing is connected to someone who actually may come and do business with you. Yep. And and there's so many people who are marketing directors and outsourced marketing companies that can show you these numbers that are not translated into anything. And I really think it gets down to the abdication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you know, there's a lot of things. I have 250 employees and I cannot be involved in everything. Uh, and I have people running departments and doing this and doing that. And there's some I'm very involved in, some I'm not at all. But when it comes to the lead generation of this organization, 26 years into this business, I'm still at the center of it. Right, right. I'm still at the center of it because that, as an entrepreneur, is what turns the dial, which makes the bell ring. Uh, if we want to improve the quality of our customers, we need to have more customers. Yep. More to choose yeah. from. If we want to improve, the expenses have gone through the roof and we need to be able to charge more. We didn't char- change our prices in nine years as a company. 
We need to charge more. Everything's through the roof. Okay. Okay. You got people bitching because we changed some prices. Boom. I just need more customers Mm -hmm. who will appreciate the value that's being brought. Yep. And so all of that to me comes back to the same source. And for me, the more successful we became as a company, the easier it was to pay someone. We had more money. We had more availability. And I'm like, "Uh uh-uh. Nope. Just because there's more money in the bank doesn't mean we get to abdicate this now. Right. And so I think, you know, what's going on in the world, you know, what problem is it, what we believe about it, what, how can we solve it, and then ultimately why will they believe us is a brilliant formula, by the way. Amazing that it came from a comedian who's now a businessman who's funny. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that is simple and simple is hard to get to. And I also believe this. Pre-COVID and post-COVID, we're in a different business environment. And like you yep. just talked about as an example, the delivery side. I was with my kids the other day, my wife. My wife loves great customer service. She rewards great customer service. She tells her friends about great customer service. And she's kind of shocked by bad customer service. So she's shocked a lot these days. (laughs) And we had an experience the other day and we went into this restaurant and she was just shocked, right? And there's new people and there's people who don't know what they're doing. But there was this pervasive view. And my, our younger kids, I've got kids from 20 to 30, right? Six of them. And then we were sitting around and the kids go, just so you know, they're used to giving out deliveries. They still haven't gotten it down that there's actually yeah. real life people in here. They're used, yeah, to just yeah, yeah. You, they're used to handing you a brown paper bag. Yeah. And I believe there is so much opportunity coming. And I also believe business-wise, there's a recession coming. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a recession cleans house like nothing. Oh, yeah. The value yeah, yeah. of the customer, the, the, the attention, the level of service is all about to increase. And I think it's, it's a great opportunity. Uh, you know, it's the, the great Warren Buffett line, right? When the tide yeah. goes out, you realize who's swimming naked. Yeah, right. But but, but can I wait one comment, Brian? Because I yeah. think this is really important for yeah. for your listeners. And that far too many entrepreneurs, when they talk about that lead generation point that you just spoke about, which is so bang on, and I consider myself the exact same thing with our agency, that I'm at the center of lead generation. But too many entrepreneurs go, every dollar I spend needs to generate a click. It needs to generate a call. And they take a very, what we call a D to C, a direct to consumer Mm. perspective on it. And that's not the way to do it. Uh, In that the fact that you're doing this podcast, there's no direct like, yeah, but what's the ROI in the podcast? Because you know that if all you do is you only evaluate every activity by the actual sale or lead that it generates, you will never build a brand. You're ju- you're just all those D to C brands. They survive only on the strength of every single Instagram ad, and they evaluate the success by an, you know how many sales it brings in. And then guess what? When somebody comes in and finds a way to make it cheaper or to drive a lower cost per call, you're done. Right. Like you're just done because you haven't built a brand. So on one hand, yes, you need a really powerful approach on metrics and analytics to look at what's working and what's not working. On the other hand. You need to do things like a podcast like this that build a brand over time so that you can actually charge a premium compared to your competitors so that you have a loyalty that goes beyond price point because it's really easy to cut price. Yeah, for sure. And if you're competing on price, you are in trouble unless you can really scale it to an enormous capacity a la Southwest Airlines. And that's not where most businesses are. We could go on, I think, for two days here. I, I will say this, Ron. I, you know, I'm around this a lot. I used to book 25 to 30 speakers a year. I'm around the brand business a long time, and I've had brand consultants. I have one now. Mm-hmm. But uh, your approach is one of the freshest, most insightful, 
most real and authentic that I've seen in a very long time. And I love the way you go about it. I think the book is essential. If anybody owns a small business, if you're not growing and investing in your business and yourself, I really believe you're not in business. I think you're playing at business. I just, it's just, and you know, right now the market's so hot and there's so much money in the system, a turkey can fly in a hurricane. Yeah. Um, but the wind is going to drop mm-hmm. and you're going to find out you're a turkey and you can't get off the ground. Yeah. And I believe Think, Do, and Say is a brilliant, insightful work on taking this all the way to the market uh, in an authentic way. So I, I, I can't well, thanks, commend Brian. it that's, that's very kind of you. Thank you. No, and again, we, we, look, we've become the largest small business coaching company in the world. And yeah. we have, we've seen it all and done it all and we've had access to it all. I just, you know, Scott Stratton mentioned you to me a number of years ago and I said, okay, well, one funny Canadian is enough in my life. You know, <laughs> yeah. can I really have room for two? And, uh, but it's really been a joy to get to know you. And again, I, I hope we can do some more work together. I definitely want to have you at some of our events. I finish up this podcast and again, I want to land the plane. I have five rapid fire questions, which I think as a guy who's been on stage, uh, you'll do very well with. But it, it really gives an insight to our listener. They know you don't know the questions. and uh, yeah. But it's the same questions I've asked from Matthew McConaughey to Magic Johnson. And so it'll be great to hear what Ron Tite has to say. So first of all, what's the single best piece of advice you've ever been given? Only rocket science is rocket science. Who gave you that? Gordon Cassidy, who was the a PhD professor and my very first boss, uh, we launched the National Executive MBA program at Queen's University. Wow. That's brilliant. And I know I can, we could talk for half an hour on the depth behind that statement. Yeah. But yeah. it also explains to me why you're able to take complex ideas and make them so simple. And that is what was, people pay you for. Yeah, it was, I was a phys ed grad working in the business school. And when they wanted to hire me, I said, I don't understand why you want a phys ed grad. And he's like, only rocket science is rocket science. Brilliant. You've got all the other skills needed here. Brilliant. Which one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Um, a, a visual art. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a writer and I, I love what I love, but I can't, I'm practicing visual art as a, a painting or drawing because mm. um, I would love to explore sketching and stuff, but I'm, I, I'm useless. It's like I've got right. two left hands here. It's interesting that the answer is 90% of the time some type of creative outlet play out, mm. you know, perform on stage musically. Some people have said do stand up, but it's always some kind of creative expression almost oh, wow. every single time. Interesting. Uh, what book has been most instrumental in your life? John Irving wrote a book called The Imaginary Girlfriend. And John Irving, who wrote, you know, Cider House Rules, Word and Court of God, Prayer for Onimini. But he was a wrestler, like me. I was a wrestler. And when he went to, when he went to college, he discovered his love of writing. And he would tell his coach, I can't go to the meet because I have to go see my girlfriend. And his girlfriend was his love of writing and where he would go and, and write. And that, to me, as a phys ed grad who didn't realize I could burst out from that and actually pursue things that I had a passion and interest in, that changed my life. And one of the most powerful moments of my life was getting to tell John Irving that story ah. at dinner when I was sitting with the publisher of my second book. Wow. 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 That's pretty cool. He was that's si- a story, beside that's a story for restaurant. a book itself, isn't it? Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Great. What one movie do you watch over and over again? If you're if it's on, you stop. You're scrolling through the channels. It's on. It always grabs you. What's the one that? Uh... I would have to say uh, Pulp Fiction, 
or Cinema Paradiso for two <laughs> very different reasons. Okay. <laughs> Pulp Fiction, because they completely messed with every, the, the logical timeline of that and I just, the brilliant performances. And Cinema Paradiso still makes me cry mm. every single time. That's great. Move to tears. Good thing. Last but not least, what does a good life look like for Ron Tice? I'm 52 years old. I have a two-year-old. <laughs> yes, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And I did not have a great father growing up. Mm. And Brian, to be able to not just provide for my children and my family, but love my kids uh, and just be a dad to them. Um, and, you know, part of that is is not is so that they can see a dad who loves what he does on a daily basis. They yep. can see a dad who is inspired and enthused by the work that he does. Yeah. Um, that it doesn't get much better. I didn't I didn't get married till I was forty three, so I didn't think I was gonna get married, let alone have kids. Wow. Uh it brings me my greatest joy. That is the good stuff, my friend. People ask me all the time about legacy, legacy, right? You get all these questions, you know, you're probably their legacy, and I go, I, you know, I don't give a rip about my legacy. My <laughs> no, legacy no. is my wife and my kids, and now I got two grandkids. So Oh, amazing. That is the good life. Well, uh, Ron, it has been an absolute treat. I be honest with you. I uh my father used to say, always leave the dinner table a little hungry. I'm leaving the table very hungry. I, I want more. Uh, the book is a great answer for it, and, uh, but I hope we can do this again. I hope I can have you to some of our events. You've got a great insight, great way about you. It's been a real uh, pleasure to get to know you, and thanks for being part of our show today. Thanks for having me. This has been absolutely wonderful. Beautiful. Well, the person who's helped me throughout my life learned, learned to think learn to do and learn to say is that little 91-year-old Irish gal that I talked to five minutes before uh, I started talking to Ron today. And uh, Therese Buffini, she's got a little Irish blessing for you all today. And you know what? With everything going on in the world, we could all use a little Irish blessing. So take it away, Therese. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.